You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. What do you think of when I say the words Area 51? I think of aliens and government cover-up. I think aliens, I think military, I think desert. Government test site for secret aircraft projects where there also might be UFOs being stashed after a UFO crash in the United States. Secret place the government hides things. There was this big thing. I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but there was this whole thing about an Area 51 raid. The military has kind of confirmed that there's top secret stuff going on there just with how they've reacted to the people trying to storm Area 51 and stuff like that. They've made it pretty clear that they don't want anybody there. For, at this point, decades, there's been various references to UFOs and creatures that were found there. Even if you have no interest in UFOs or government conspiracies, you know about Area 51. It's the secret base where the government supposedly houses crashed UFOs. It's where advanced alien technology is used to create aircraft whose capabilities defy the laws of physics as we know them. And it's evidence of a profound government conspiracy. Chris Carter had these cultural understandings in mind when he created the X-Files. We took a lot of what people knew about aliens or believed about aliens and UFOs, extraterrestrials, and the government conspiracy. And there was a certain fascination with Roswell, with Area 51. They were part of the extraterrestrial alien abduction UFO lore. So how do you know about Area 51? Do you remember when you first heard about it? When you heard about it again and again, it's not from the government. Until recently, the government hasn't said anything official about UFOs since 1969. What we think we know about UFOs didn't come from any authoritative source. Instead, our understanding comes from unofficial sources within the culture. It is a kind of modern folklore. Now, folklore might make you think of myths or fairy tales or things that aren't true, but that's not necessarily the case. Folklore is just knowledge that is transmitted through non-formal means, like jokes or urban legends or rumors. 
Whether that knowledge represents something real or not is almost beside the point. What is important is how that information is created and why it catches on. On this season of Strange Arrivals, we'll look at how that cultural understanding of UFOs evolved, beginning with the case known as Britain's Roswell, a series of encounters that stretched over three nights. We'll look at the initial story of the encounters, what the explanations might be, and then how the accounts changed and grew after the fact. Zooming out, how was our understanding of UFOs formed, beginning in the late 1940s, and how does it continue to influence the way we look at strange things in the sky? I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 1, Boxing Day, 1980. A variety of entertainment for Christmas. Comedy with little and large. Mike Yarwood's Christmas show. This year she set fire to the turkey and stuffed the Christmas pudding. <laughs> Christmas magic and illusion with Paul Daniels. Now we've got all these crackers from the Christmas tree. And it's a festive blankety-blank. Oh, look, the place scattered with empty boxes. Entertainment for Christmas with BBC One. Christmas night, 1980, at Royal Air Force Bentwaters, an airbase 75 miles northeast of London on the North Sea coast. RAF Bentwaters was technically a British base, but since World War II had been under the control of the U.S. Air Force. Three miles from Bentwaters was another Royal Air Force base under U.S. control, called RAF Woodbridge. Surrounding these bases was a tract of English land called Rendlesham Forest. And it was on this tract of land that the sightings known as Britain's Roswell occurred. There were a number of witnesses to these events, but we will hear from the three who had the most direct experiences, two of them in this episode. Well, we came on duty, it was Christmas night at 2300. It's kind of a laid back night. They were actually playing some uh, Christmas songs on the radio on one of the frequencies. The story of the first night starts with John Burroughs. My name is John Burroughs. I'm retired United States Air Force. I was involved in an incident in 1980 that was at RAF Bentwaters. I was law enforcement, so I was like a city cop. So I was stationed there from 79 to 81. We worked 2300 to 0700. About 0300 on the 26th, which is Boxing Day in the UK. While patrol, I was uh, riding with my supervisor, just got to the base, and he wanted to ride around for a little bit. We were out doing some checks, and one of the checks was go down by the East Gate. We were driving down towards the East Gate when he saw something strange in the sky. Went into the forest, later was quoted as saying it landed, it didn't crash. Because I'd been stationed there for almost two years, he got my attention and asked me if I'd seen anything like that down there in that vicinity. And I looked at what he was looking at and I said, no. There was like a coloring in the forest, like orangish, reddish, like a white light. Burroughs' supervisor, Sergeant Bud Steffens, 
decided that they needed to investigate this further. This meant leaving the base. He decided that we were going to open up the gate, go down to the end of the road where there was a T where there, where you were right there, where you make a left or a right, left to go to Bellwaters, and then the forest was right across the road. Leaving the base was not a decision to be made lightly. Once they stepped foot off base, they were on English land. As we will see, it can be a very big deal to have U.S. military acting on English territory without permission. On this night, they left the base. So we drove down to the T. He did like a U-turn, so the vehicle was partially heading back towards the gate. I opened my door. When I opened the door, you could see the light. It was the white light that was advancing towards us. There was a static electricity in the air. At that point, both him and I decided it was time to get back on the base because no one knew we were off base and to call in what was going on. We went up to the gate, called it in. There was a direct line to the law enforcement desk. The desk sergeant at the desk, I played some practical jokes on him. So he actually didn't totally believe me, but Stephens got on the phone and reinforced it. But the desk sergeant still wasn't sure. So he transferred the call to Central Security Control, or CSC. We went ahead and briefed CSC on what was going on. At that point, they sent the security supervisor down to the gate. That would have been Sergeant Penniston. My name is Jim Penniston, uh, United States Air Force retired. Sergeant Jim Penniston is the second of the main witnesses. I was assigned as a security police flight chief we worked out of the main operating base, which was Bentwaters. But that night I was working as flight chief over at Woodbridge Base. My job was the protection of all the priority B and C resources over there, and also the base personnel and their property. And I was doing a perimeter lighting check for the base, which ones were burned out, really mundane stuff. I completed all that. I met up on Sergeant McCulley at the chow hall on the base. This is around 12 o'clock, midnight. As we'll see, the eyewitness stories are not always consistent. To make the narrative easier to follow, we'll start by looking at the basics of the story, the things they agree on. We'll examine the differences later. For now, though, it's important to note that Burroughs and Penniston disagree about a very important and fundamental part of the story, the timing of events. Burroughs talks about the sighting beginning around three in the morning. Penniston puts it at midnight. I promise we'll take a look at why this matters later in the season, but Burroughs' timing is consistent with other statements given at the time. So for clarity, we'll use Burroughs' timeline. And that means when Penniston talks about being at the Chow Hall at midnight, we're actually talking about 3 a.m. Sergeant McCulley says, you got a call to call Central Security Control. And I said, okay, I missed it. And I went over to our direct line there and I said, what's going on? And they said, you need to go out to the East Gate immediately. Go code two. Code two meant proceed with lights on, but no sirens. This indicated that there was some urgency to the situation. Penniston asked what was going on. They said, well, you'll be briefed after you get out there, which was odd. 
So it's about a five minute drive going, you know, 45 miles an hour. I get out there at the East Gate area and Sergeant Bud Steffens, he's the law enforcement supervisor. I contact him, I said, what's going on, Bud? He started pointing over toward Rendlesham Forest. And I says, oh, what's that over there? He's, I'm trying to figure out what it is. And he's not telling me. You could see uh, glowing uh, multicolor lights and white light over the canopy of the forest. Penniston thought that the most likely explanation was a plane crash. He'd seen a number in his career. I says, you know, did you hear it crash or, you know, did, did it land or? He said, landed. I said, that's impossible because the forest, all the trees are about five to six feet apart. So there's nothing that could survive a, a landing out there. Despite this strange comment from Steffens, Penniston still figured it was probably an airplane crash and he used the direct phone line at the East Gate to call back to Central Security Control on base. And so I'm on the phone with Sergeant Coffee, and when you make a direct call to Central Security Control, you have like five people on the line at the time, and they're all doing different functions. I was talking to uh, Sergeant Chandler, the flight sergeant, and I was telling him about what I was observing. And Sergeant Coffee comes back online and says, uh, yeah, I've contacted Eastern Radar, London Radar, and Bentwaters Radar, and we have lost uh, contact with a bogey, and he says, over Woodbridge Base. That means that it didn't have a transponder on it. It is probably military. And he said about 15 minutes ago. So that created the emergency situation along with my visual sighting that we had a possible aircraft downing. With the emergency condition existed, that gave us rights under the status of forces agreement to deploy off base and to investigate and to secure the crash site. So I took myself, a security airman and a law enforcement airman with me. The security airman was named Ed Cabansag. The law enforcement airman was John Burroughs. There was no need to take uh, weapons off base for an aircraft crash. The British were very sensitive about automatic weapons and stuff like that being off base. Airman John Burroughs. We left our weapons with Stephens, who didn't want to go in the first place, so he watched our weapons, and we proceeded off base into the forest. So while Burroughs' supervisor, Bud Stephens, stayed back with the other men's weapons, Penniston, Burroughs, and Cabansag piled into a jeep and drove towards the lights, expecting to come across a downed plane. Went as far as I could with my CJ-5 jeep that we had. That's where I set the entry control point up. Airman Cabansag, the security airman, the only other person had a radio, interbase radio was him. So I set him up as the entry controller I was going to proceed to the actual crash site with the law enforcement airman, Airman Burroughs. At that time, I was noticing I was having breakup of my radio, which was impossible because we had repeaters all over the bases. There's no way that we could have a radio problem, but I was having one. So I told Kabanzak, for any reason, the control center doesn't read what I'm saying or something like that, I want you to relay the information. He said he'd do that. So leaving Cabansag behind, 
Peniston and Burroughs proceeded further into the forest, towards the light. Strange arrivals will return in a moment. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. We've heard John Burroughs and Jim Penniston tell us their version of what led up to their encounter in the forest. Afterward, several of the witnesses, including Burroughs and Penniston, wrote statements to describe what had happened that night. We will have actors read from those statements where they help to clarify the story. This is from Burroughs' handwritten statement. We crossed a small open field that led into where the lights were coming from. And as we were coming into the trees, there were strange noises, like a woman screaming. Also, the woods lit up and you could hear the farm animals making a lot of noises. And there was a lot of movement in the woods. Again, Sergeant Jim Penniston. And so we get to the forest edge and I'm I'm seeing the multicolor lights has pretty much disappeared. I'm seeing mainly a white light coming out from behind the trees. I entered the forest and I start feeling different physical sensations. Like I could feel static electricity on my face and my hair and my clothes. And that was unusual. I was finding my movements labored. It'd be like walking through a pool of water that was a waist deep. They struggled to get to a low embankment, which Burroughs refers to as a berm. As we came up on the top of the berm, there was bright lights right in front of us. When we saw the lights, we all hit the ground, 
and whatever it was, it was really bright, dimmed down a little bit, and all I remember was the lights dimming down and going bright again. Burroughs and Penniston have very different stories about what happened next. We'll come back to Penniston's account later in the season. Burroughs' account is very brief. According to him, shortly after they came upon it, the light began to retreat from them. Once the lights began moving again, their accounts basically line up. Here is another passage from Burroughs' written account, read by an actor. Whatever it was, after a minute or two, we got up and moved into the trees, and the lights moved out into the open field. Burroughs handwrote his statement describing the events of this night. Penniston's account was typed. Strangely, Penniston says that he didn't even write the statement himself. He says that he reported to Central Security Control after the event and was handed a typed sheet. It was the official story. He says he was told that this was his account. He gave it a quick read. So I read through it. Times were right. The information was right. I gave it back to him. Penniston says the document was created based on his radio transmissions during the incident. Apparently, even though he was unable to receive transmissions at the time, his words got back to base. Here, from his typed statement, he describes the craft leaving the forest. It was definitely mechanical in nature. This is the closest point that I was near the object at any point. We then proceeded after it. It moved in a zigzagging manner back through the woods, then lost sight of it. Again, Penniston will have much more to say about this part of the encounter later in the season. It's important to note that Burroughs says that he never actually saw a physical craft. He just saw lights, though he doesn't discount the idea that an actual craft was the source. At that point in time, I was pretty much trying to regain some sense of what was going on. And the airman that was 20 feet back to my right was beside me at this point, and he's all excited. He's talking about John Burroughs. He says that he sees a craft, which was impossible to see a craft at that point because the wood's so thick. And he took off. And so I immediately started following because we had, you know, we have to maintain a team concept, which uh, was pretty hard to do. The lights are, you know, you could maybe say object or whatever because of the lights. But, you know, as far as a craft, he called it a craft. I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm just saying that's what, I, what I'm calling it. I have no idea what it was. What we did then was we got up and... We could see it. We were at the edge of the forest before a field started, a farmer's field. Then there were some cottages farther down into the field. So we saw something strange down by one of the houses or cottages, and we climbed over the fence, went through the field, and whatever it was was gone again. He was off at a good pace. And we maybe went maybe 50, 60 yards. I had to jump two fences, uh, one barbed wire. We got to a farmer's field. I'm chasing him. I fall down two or three times in the middle of this farmer's field. 
I was wet, I was cold, I was exhausted. It was the beginning of winter. A layer of ice had formed over the field. Penniston got past the farmer's houses and caught up with Burroughs, who was watching the sky. Penniston asked Burroughs what he was chasing. Burroughs said he was chasing the UFO. I said, where's that? I couldn't gain a visual of it. And finally, he put his arm out and he said, look down on my arm. He points in the opposite direction that we were running in toward the coast. I said, where is it? I don't see it. He said, yeah, it's right there, right there on the horizon. There? I said, that's the Orford Ness Lighthouse. That's five miles away. That's not what we've seen. Then when I turned back around, the craft was sitting above the tree line over by Capel Green, which is more forest. And then it just started moving out toward the sea at a slower rate. I don't know, I can guesstimate, say maybe four or 500 miles an hour, but you could at least see it transverse the uh, sky. Immediately after I lost contact with that sighting over that, my radio was working. I told him that I could receive him well, and he says, uh, go ahead and proceed to the east gate. And uh, that's what we did. Penniston's detailed description of this conversation with Burroughs about where the lighthouse was and where the UFO was becomes important. Burroughs, it should be noted, mentioned in his written account that they actually saw that the light they were chasing was coming from a lighthouse. Both men mentioned seeing a blue light, what Penniston just referred to as the craft. Burroughs wrote, We had just passed a creek and were told to come back when we saw a blue light to our left in the trees. It was only there for a minute and just streaked away. The typed account approved by Penniston merely said, On the way back, we encountered a blue streaking light to the left, only lasting a few seconds. That was the end of the encounter on the first night. With the lights gone, the three men returned to the Jeep and drove back to the base. It's kind of vague because I don't, what I basically just remember was we came back, there were some people waiting for us. I don't remember what we said at the time, but there was kind of a conversation. I don't want to call it a debrief, but he talked to us about what went on, told us about the radar, the contact and all that other stuff. Penniston, meanwhile, reported to Central Security Control. And I go with the security guys, arrive back at Central Security Control, and Sergeant Chandler, the flight sergeant from Bentwaters, is waiting for me, and he says, uh, how you doing? I said, you ain't gonna believe all this. Everything that happened. He says, oh yeah, he says, I was at the East Gate. He says, I seen it all. I says, wow, I said, I don't know what to say. He was just about as perplexed as I was. He says, well, when you're done uh, turning in your weapon and stuff like that, the uh, flight captain wants to see it in his office. That's okay. Before meeting with the captain, Penniston was shown the pre-typed statement about the incident and approved it. I go back out to see Captain Verano, and Burroughs is standing as you come with me. Just don't say anything. I'll report in for us. And I knew that I had to keep it 
simple. There's certain things you at the time that you would never say in the Air Force because it'd be an end of your career. And one of those terms is UFO. You don't use that. So I came up with a term that would best describe it, you know, without lying. I called it a craft of unknown origin. Captain Morano, he said, I don't know how, I don't think we can report this. He says, uh, you know, Blue Book in 69, he says, uh, I don't think there's a way to report it. The captain was referring to Project Blue Book, the last of three Air Force programs investigating UFO reports. The first, Project Sign, began in 1948. In 1969, the Air Force officially closed the program. From that point on, Air Force policy was to no longer take UFO reports. People who called in with sightings were referred to local law enforcement. Because of this policy, it wasn't clear what to do with the reports of the events of that night. The captain was stumped. He says, I'll tell you what to do. He says, uh, just go home. He says, take three days off and let me handle it. I said, okay. And that's what I did. So I got back in the vehicle. And at that time, I was going to give Burroughs a ride home. And we lived down in Ipswich. which was about 20 miles away. Burroughs says, we got to go back out there. I said, oh, no. He said, no, we should look at it in the daylight. And I says, okay. Okay, he was pretty adamant about it, but you know, it made sense. We went back out there, uh, private-owned vehicle, and we walked back through the woods, and we're looking at, you know, the area we're at, and Burroughs uh, finds the uh, landing site, takeoff site. He says, over here, over here, and I go over and look, and there's three indentions in the ground that were the, where the craft was sitting. I said, we would be better just get out of here, you know. That's enough. That's all I wanted to see. As they walked back towards Penniston's vehicle, they ran into a group of superior officers, including a major Drury, who were walking towards what Penniston calls the landing site. Major Drury says, what are you doing out here? And I said, we just wanted to look at this in the light. And he said, you guys need to go home. We're going to handle it. And I said, okay, no problem, sir. So that's what we did. And at that point, then, that was the end for me of night one. You know, I went home and uh, went to bed. Penniston, though, was unable to sleep. He asked his landlord, who was apparently a contractor who did painting and light repair work on houses, for some plaster of Paris. Got all pre-mixed and stuff like that, put it in the bags, got my backpack, went back out there. I didn't run anybody going out there. They were all gone. I uh, took impressions uh, with the plaster of Paris of the ground, landing pod area. Waited out there at the time I smoked. I think it took three cigarettes. I waited for it to dry. When the casts were dry, he packed them into his backpack and left the site. On his way back to where he had parked, he once again ran into Major Drury this time accompanied by a half-dozen cops. This was not a great situation for Penniston, since he'd been ordered home previously. He said, I thought I told you to go home. I said, I was. I just wanted to check it out. I said, go home. He said, that's an order. He says, I want you to relax. Penniston went home 
with his plaster of Paris casts and finally got some sleep. The first encounter was finally over. There was no way he could know that the sightings had just begun. Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey with voice acting by Joe McCormick and Jeff Williams and special thanks to Wendy Connors, creator of the Faded Discs archive of UFO-related audio on archive.org. Learn more about Strange Rivals over at GrimAndMild.com and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.